You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Well, this is it. The final episode, the eighth in the series, on Lewis and Clark and the Corps of Discovery. It is our longest podcast series to date, and I thank everyone for sticking with me through the entire affair. I hope that you have enjoyed it. So, last time, we got the Corps of Discovery back to St. Louis in September of 1806. They were welcomed home by the nation as heroes. But there is so much more about the Lewis and Clark expedition that we can talk about, hence this episode. It is a task that is almost too much in some ways, but we'll take a stab at it. As there's not really a specific narrative to follow, this big wrap-up might be a bit rambly on my part, so forgive me if things get a bit long-winded or I repeat myself. What we will do is break things down into four sections. In section one, we'll do a sort of aftermath report, summarizing what happened in the months after the return of the Corps to St. Louis in the fall of 1806. In section two, we will do a rundown on what happened to the people, aside from Lewis and Clark, that were involved in the expedition. I want to do this because we've spent a lot of time with the Corps of Discovery, and I think it's only right to give you a bit of a summary as to what happened to some of these folks, who we've spent so much time with in this series. In Section 3, we will cover the lives of the expedition's leaders, William Clark and Meriwether Lewis. In our fourth and final section, we will talk about the long-term ramifications of the Lewis and Clark expedition, discuss the legacy of the Corps of Discovery, and make a few random observations. So with that, let us get started. Section 1, The Aftermath As Meriwether Lewis approached St. Louis in the late summer of 1806, he carefully crafted a letter to President Thomas Jefferson. It was a summary of the expedition, covering a wide range of topics. For Lewis, the letter was important, as he wanted to establish the narrative about the expedition and the accomplishments of the Corps. And I think the letter is a good way to frame what the expedition had and had not accomplished. In the letter, Lewis extolled the exploits of the Corps the dangers they had faced, the exemplary conduct of the men, that sort of thing. He wanted to demonstrate that he, Captain Clark, and the rest of the men had achieved something extraordinary, which was true. Of the men of the court, he would write a testimonial for each. It showed his immense respect he had for them and the bonds that had been forged between all of them. Of his co-commander, Captain William Clark, Lewis would write, quote, With respect to the exertions and services rendered by that estimable man, Captain William Clark, in the course of our late voyage, I cannot say too much. If, sir, any credit be due for the success of the arduous enterprise in which we have mutually engaged, he is equally with myself entitled to your consideration and that of our common country. End quote. Again, it is a testament to the two men. They had worked together seamlessly without conflict, and even after such an extended time, they still had the utmost respect for one another, a respect that had allowed the co-command structure of the Corps to actually work. So, in addition to praising the men, Lewis would tell Jefferson about the disappointments. There was no all-water passage or easy route to the Pacific. There was no sugar-coating that fact. But Lewis also stressed the opportunities that the West held for the United States. He detailed his vision of an American trade empire in the territory, based around the Shoshone and Nez Perce. 
He wrote about the abundant beavers in the rivers and the furs that would fuel the industry. He detailed how this would happen, how the United States would need to build forts and trading posts along the route, how they would need to engage the Native American tribes and turn them from the British. It would be a lucrative enterprise, and by doing this, the United States would take firm control of the plains area. Also, this vision set the stage for the ocean-to-ocean American nation that Thomas Jefferson dreamed about. Beyond these grandiose ideas, Lewis included an inventory of items that he was sending back to Washington, D.C. This included furs and plants and other specimens, as well as journals, charts, scientific calculations, and maps. So, when the Americans arrived in St. Louis, Captain Lewis would send his letter off to the president, and, after a lot of celebrating, the captains would go about preparing to ship all the stuff back to Washington, D.C. One thing that did not go back to the president was the detailed map that William Clark had drawn of the newly uncovered Western territories. There was only one copy of the map, and Lewis planned on delivering that by hand to Jefferson as it was so valuable. So, with the Corps back in St. Louis, it wasn't long before word of their return spread throughout the United States and the world. Now, I want to stress that the return of Lewis and Clark was not the first news about the expedition to reach the world. Remember, the previous year, the expedition had sent back the keelboat from the Mandan villages to St. Louis. That trip back had gone well. In time, a collection of items would be sent east to President Jefferson. There were charts and journals and maps, even some live animals, including a magpie and a prairie dog. Thus, everyone knew that the expedition had reached the Mandan villages. What they didn't know was what had happened to the court since they had departed from the villages in April of 1805. As we had talked about last time, many thought they had died. But here they were. They had returned, and the nation celebrated. The young republic was proud of their boys. It wasn't the British or Spanish who had conducted this epic trek. It had been Americans who had done it, and the public was happy to flaunt this success on the world stage. Now, the general public mostly focused on the fantastic elements of the expedition. The encounters with the Indians, the evocative descriptions of the lands, the dangerous fights. Face it, people in 1806 love to be thrilled, just like they do today. But there were others interested in the expedition for more than the excitement. The business community wanted to know about the economic opportunities that awaited them, especially with regard to the fur trade. They wanted to know where they could find beavers. How many were there? What was the attitude of the native tribes? For these business people, it was about how they could make money. Still others who read about the exploits of the court, well, they were looking for opportunities of land and land ownership. In addition to land speculators, these were families and farmers seeking a way to make a future. The descriptions they would read of the lands Lewis and Clark wrote about would inspire some to begin plotting a move west. Because of the immediate interest in the expedition, Lewis would compose a 3,200-word letter for publication. In it, he praised the lands of the west and noted the opportunities available. He also recounted the hardships the Corps had endured, essentially teasing the nation about the journals he imagined he would be publishing. So, it was September 1806, and the Corps was back. There was a buzz going around the nation about them. The captains were spreading the word of the Corps' exploits, and the great stuff they had brought back was packed up and sent to President Thomas Jefferson. Upon their return, the captains would be feted by the locals in St. Louis, dinners and balls and speeches, including a formal celebration that took place on September 25th. During that evening, 17 toasts were made, the first to President Jefferson. But the next thing they really needed to do was to wrap up the finances of the expedition, which was not a simple thing. This would fall primarily upon Meriwether Lewis's shoulders. Lewis had given out many IOUs in the past few years, and now he had 30 or so men asking for payments for their services. Lewis would get cash from local merchants and lenders, again issuing government IOUs to cover the payments. By the way, Congress would ultimately grant each of the men of the Corps of Discovery 
double wages for their extraordinary service, plus land grants of 320 acres. In case you are wondering, base pay for a private was $5 a month, a sergeant got $8 a month, while lieutenants got $30, and a captain got $40. So, for the men of the expedition, this was a financial windfall, double pay plus land that was worth several hundred dollars. With the men paid and things wrapped up in St. Louis, the next step for the captain was to go to Washington, D.C., per orders from Thomas Jefferson. The captains finally departed St. Louis in November of 1806. They brought with them the Mandan chief Shaheki, as well as his family, a translator, plus some Osage chiefs. From the Corps of Discovery, Sergeants Patrick Gass and John Ordway took the journey, as did Privates Francois Labiche and Robert Fraser. Clark's slave York was also in attendance. Once the party got east, the two captains split up, with Clark going to visit family and friends. From this point on, the official business of the Corps really falls to Meriwether Lewis. It will be his job to report to the President and handle all the after-expedition business that needed to be done. So while the native Indian delegation went directly to D.C., Lewis headed to his own home in Charlottesville, Virginia, to spend Christmas with his family. After that, it was on to the Capitol and a reunion with his mentor, President Thomas Jefferson. As with pretty much everywhere he went, Lewis basked in the attention he received in Washington and Philadelphia. He was welcomed to hero, at least by most people. We should remind ourselves that some thought that the expedition was a grandiose waste of time and money, but for the most part, it was smiles and hugs and drinks all around. In Washington, Lewis would, of course, meet with the president. Jefferson was thrilled to see his protege again. Lewis was the physical manifestation of the dream he had had for decades. And to have Lewis there, giving him a first-hand account of the expedition, showing him William Clark's map, that would have been extraordinary. As for the Indians who had come east, they would be given the grand treatment by Jefferson. They would even be taken to the theater, where some of Shaheki's entourage danced for the audience. As with the Indians who had visited the previous year, Jefferson treated them with respect, but he made his message very clear. The American nation was powerful, and it was coming west, and the best thing to do was to get on board so as not to get swept aside. For Meriwether Lewis, the next few months were celebrations and parties, but there was still work to be done regarding the Corps. First, Lewis, working with Jefferson, set out to have Congress authorize a reward for the service they had just completed. And second, Lewis needed to get the journals of the expedition organized and published for the world to see. The latter was critical to Thomas Jefferson, as he wanted to promote the new lands that had just been traversed. He imagined that publishing the journals would not take that long, but little did he realize what a challenge it would ultimately be. That is a subject we will discuss a bit later. As for money, after some fighting with Congress, a compensation package was approved. The men would get double pay, plus 320 acres of land anywhere west of the Mississippi, as long as it was surveyed. Lewis and Clark would get 1,600 acres of land, as well as double pay. As a note, Clark was paid as a lieutenant, not a captain. This was a sore point for all parties, but it was Congress and the War Department that controlled the ranks of the men, and there was nothing Lewis, Clark, or Jefferson could do about it. In all, the expedition would pay out more than $11,000 in salaries, far more than originally intended. Plus, there was the cost for provisions and supplies, and the expense of sending the Indians to Washington, D.C. But for President Jefferson, it was worth it, and much, much more. The Corps of Discovery had returned from their epic journey to the Pacific coast. Even though there were disappointments, it had brought back a bonanza of geographic, cultural, and scientific information. The future was bright for everyone, the nation, President Jefferson, William Clark, and Meriwether Lewis. So that pretty much wraps up the aftermath section of our story. Let us move on to the next part of this podcast. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? 
and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Section 2. The Members of the Corps With this section, I want to run through the lives of the members of the Corps of Discovery, save for Lewis and Clark, who we will cover in depth in the next section. So, let's start first with the military men of the Corps. Now, we're not going to go through every single person in the Corps. Instead, we will talk about those men who made a mark in some way during our story. After the expedition concluded in the fall of 1806, most of the military men involved with the journey would go back to army or private life, and then simply fade from history. As we noted before, each of the men would be given double pay for their service and land grants. Many of the men probably took advantage of that, and became farmers or craftsmen or merchants or whatever, and went on with their lives. But some of these men left their marks in other ways. Let us take a look. We'll start with the sergeants of the Corps of Discovery. The first sergeant we will look at was Charles Floyd. Floyd, if you recall, was the only member of the Corps to die on the Lewis and Clark expedition, the result of a ruptured appendix. But Floyd, who was a respected member of the expedition, is not forgotten. Floyd's bluff in Sioux City, Iowa, where he was buried, still exists to this day. The Sergeant Floyd Monument, part of a 23-acre park, is near Floyd's bluff, and Floyd's body was later moved to it. Floyd County, Iowa, is named after the sergeant, as is a bridge crossing the Missouri. Our second sergeant was Patrick Gass. Gass had been raised a sergeant on the death of Charles Floyd, and had done an admirable job. He would publish the first account of the expedition in 1807. Called Corps of Discovery, it was basically a cleaned-up version of his journal. Gass remained in the Army after the expedition, and lost an eye in the War of 1812. He would live to the ripe old age of 98, dying in 1870. When the American Civil War broke out in 1861, he reportedly tried to enlist in the Army at the age of 91 to fight the rebels. He did not marry until he was 60 years old, but he would still manage to have seven children. The third sergeant in the expedition was John Ordway. Ordway was the senior sergeant on the expedition and frequently took command when the captains were not present. He married after the expedition and became a successful landowner in Missouri. He died in 1817 at the age of 42. His writings are considered the best of the sergeants, and he was the only member of the Corps to keep a journal throughout the entire journey. That's 863 entries. Some of his writings are not particularly detailed, but they are still greatly valued. Our final sergeant was Nathaniel Pryor. The well-respected Pryor stayed in the Army and was promoted to second lieutenant. In 1807, he would be charged with returning the Mandan chief, Shaheki, a.k.a. Big White, to his people. The mission would fail as the party was turned back due to hostile Arakaris. After resigning from the Army in 1810, Pryor went into the fur trade business before rejoining the military for the War of 1812. He would rise to the rank of captain and fight in the Battle of New Orleans. He would return to the fur trade after the war and marry an Osage woman and have several children. He would then serve as an Indian agent for many years before dying in 1831. The city of Pryor Creek, Oklahoma, and the community of Pryor, Montana, as well as the Pryor Mountains in Montana, are named after him. So those are the sergeants. It was an impressive group of men, all quality contributors to the expedition. 
and all of them, save for Floyd, were successful in life after the journey. Now, let us move on to some of the notable privates in the Corps of Discovery. The first private of note was John Coulter, whom we talked about in our last episode. The man would have a pretty fascinating life. He was an outstanding frontiersman, one of the first selected to hunt or scout. He had served the expedition very well. Coulter was the only soldier from the expedition who did not return to St. Louis. Instead, he stayed at the Mandan villages, joining Forrest Hancock and Joseph Dixon, two frontiersmen, to go trapping beaver. He would spend the next few years in the West, taking on various jobs in the Great Plains and Rockies. In 1807, Coulter became the first white man to see Yellowstone Park. The following year, he would face death with the famed Coulter's Run. This incident involved another member of the Corps of Discovery, Private John Potts. The two were on a trapping venture in the Three Forks area of Montana when they were attacked by a large force of Blackfeet Indians. Potts was killed, his body hacked up, and Coulter was captured. Instead of killing Coulter, the Blackfeet stripped him naked and forced him to run for his life, chased like game. Giving this slim chance of survival, Coulter seized the opportunity. With a group of Blackfeet on his tail, Coulter outran them all, except one Indian. Coulter would eventually confront his pursuer and kill him in a fight. He then fled and hid in a beaver lodge. Once the Blackfeet gave up the search, Coulter emerged from the den and walked for 11 days to a trader's fort on the Little Bighorn River. In 1810, Coulter finally returned to St. Louis after six years on the frontier. He married, had a son, and bought a farm in Missouri. He later recounted to William Clark information about his journeys, allowing Clark to update the maps of the West based upon all this new data. Coulter died suddenly in 1813 of an unspecified illness. Coulter's experiences have been depicted in several movies, mostly surrounding his famous Coulter's Run. The excellent 1965 film The Naked Prey is based on Coulter's Run, although the setting has been moved to Africa. Next on our list is Private Pierre Cruzette. Cruzette was a valued member of the Corps, even if he did accidentally shoot Meriwether Lewis. The son of a French trapper and an Omaha woman, he was a first-rate boatman, the best the expedition had. He was also an excellent fiddler, his plane entertaining the men of the Corps and the Indians that they encountered along the trek to the coast and back. After the Lewis and Clark expedition, not much is known about Cruzette, and he essentially disappears from history. There are some indications he died in the mid-1820s, but the source is unreliable. Next are the brothers Joseph and Reuben Field. The two are famous for participating in the near-disastrous Maria's River jaunt in the summer of 1806. But even before that, they had been valued members of the expedition, as evidenced by the fact that Lewis would recommend additional bonuses for both men. Joseph Field would die a year after returning to St. Louis. I could not find any details on his death. His brother Reuben would move to Kentucky and become a farmer. He died in 1822. Next up is Private Robert Fraser. Fraser kept a journal during the expedition, and he received permission to publish this information after returning east. However, nothing ever became of the plan, and his journal has been lost, although a map he made has survived. I could not find anything else about Fraser other than he died in 1837. The next man is Private Francois Labiche. The son of a French-Canadian trapper and an Omaha Indian, Labiche was an experienced Indian trader and boatman. He spoke French and several Indian languages, making him very valuable to the Corps. He was one of only a handful of Corps members to be recommended for extra compensation due to his translation skills being so valued. Labiche would ultimately return to the St. Louis area, and he would have a large family, seven children. He would work the area as a boatman before dying sometime in the late 1830s. Our next private is George Shannon. Shannon was the youngest member of the Corps, and he is often remembered for getting lost in the fall of 1804 in modern-day Nebraska. 
A loyal and upstanding man, he would stay in the army and in 1807 accompany Nathaniel Pryor back to the Mandan villages to bring the Mandan chief Shaheki home. The mission, however, was not completed as Arikari Indians attacked the American party and forced it to retreat. Shannon would be badly injured in the fighting and lose a leg. Shannon married in 1813 and went on to study law. He would have his own practice for a time and then serve as a judge and a U.S. district attorney. He then went into politics, being elected to the Kentucky House of Representatives, and then served as a U.S. Senator from Kentucky. One of his brothers also became a congressman, and another brother became a state governor. Shannon died in 1836. Shannon County, Missouri is named after him. Also, in 2001, a group of Nebraska communities formed the Shannon Trail Promoters. The idea was to promote tourism during the bicentennial of the Lewis and Clark Expedition. For this, a 240-mile trail, following the path it was believed to have wandered back in 1804, was set up, with markers and sculptures recounting Shannon's trek and his career. Next up is Private John Shields, the only married man in the expedition. Shields was one of the most valuable members of the Corps, due to his blacksmith and gunsmith skills. Both Lewis and Clark praised the man during and after the expedition, and he was one of the men that Lewis recommended be given a bonus for his services. After returning to St. Louis, Shields remained in Missouri, where he hunted and trapped with the famous Daniel Boone. He would die in 1809. Shields' daughter, Martha Jeanette, married John Tipton, who would be a U.S. Army general and senator from Indiana. Now, two other men of the Corps I want to mention, but with special circumstances, are Private John Newman and Corporal Richard Worthington. Newman is fascinating. He had been kicked out of the Corps in October of 18 after saying things that were of a, quote, highly criminal and mutinous nature, end quote. Kicked out of the Corps, Newman would go along to the Mandan villages as a simple boatman. But Newman reportedly so regretted what he had done, he went to great lengths to atone for his mistakes. He tried to get the captains to let him back in the Corps, but that wasn't going to happen. No matter, Newman so impressed everyone that Meriwether Lewis had this to say, quote, he stood acquitted in my mind, end quote. Newman would conduct himself exceptionally well when he returned to St. Louis on the keelboat in the spring and summer of 1805. Due to Lewis's recommendation, Newman would receive partial pay for his services as well as land grants. Eventually, Newman would head back to the upper Missouri to trap. However, he would be killed by Yankton Sioux Indians in 1838. The other man I want to mention is Corporal Richard Warfington. If you recall, Warfington had traveled to the Mandan villages as a member of the Corps, but had returned with the keelboat the next spring. By doing so, he delivered that first year's collection of journals and maps, plus botanical and animal specimens, to President Jefferson. Lewis recommended that Warfington be given additional compensation for his excellent service. After the expedition, Warfington pretty much disappears. The only mention of him is a note from William Clark, written in the mid-1820s, that shows he was still alive. So that covers the military contingent of the Corps of Discovery. There were, of course, many others. But little is known about the rest of these men, and I'm not just going to rattle off names of people we have barely or not at all discussed. However, there were several non-military members of the Corps of Discovery that we do need to talk about. The first people on our list are Toussaint Charbonneau and Sacagawea. Charbonneau and Sacagawea joined the expedition at the Mandan villages as translators. Clark seemed to have liked Charbonneau, but Lewis frequently noted the man's shortcomings, saying he was, quote, a man of no particular merit, end quote. As for Sacagawea, she would prove her worth on several occasions during the long march to the Pacific and back, and not just as a translator. Numerous times, she helped provide direction for the party, and she aided the Corps in establishing a positive relationship with her native Shoshone people. 
On one occasion, she risked her life to swim out and save some important items that had spilled into the water when a canoe capsized. Also, her presence within the expedition helped calm the nerves of the various native tribes along the route, as a woman and a baby in the ranks of the Corps of Discovery signaled to everyone that the expedition was not a war party. As noted in the last episode, Clark would write to Charbonneau after the expedition, praising Sacagawea's contributions. Charbonneau and Sacagawea remained at the Mandan villages in the summer of 1806, declining an invitation from Captain Clark to come to St. Louis. However, in 1809, they would take Clark up on the offer as they decided they wanted to have their son, Jean-Baptiste, also known as Pompey, educated. However, life in the city did not suit either Charbonneau or Sacagawea. An attempt at farming lasted only a few months, and the couple eventually returned to the Mandan lands. In 1810, Sacagawea gave birth to a daughter, Lizette Charbonneau. Then, in 1812, Sacagawea would get sick and die, likely from typhus. She was only about 24 years old. Oral tradition amongst American Indians say that Sacagawea left her husband, eventually returning to her people, the Shoshone, and living a long life to the age of 95. This is, however, a romantic notion. All evidence indicates that she died at a young age. In 1813, Toussaint Charbonneau would give formal custody of Jean-Baptiste to William Clark, who had raised the boy. He also gave Clark custody of Lisette. Not much is known about the girl, but it is believed that she died in childhood. For many years, from 1811 to 1838, Toussaint Charbonneau worked for the Indian Bureau as a translator, landing the job courtesy of William Clark. Charbonneau was not a particularly well-liked man, and after Clark's death in 1838, he would lose his government job. He would die around 1843. The exact date is not known. In death, the reputations of Toussaint Charbonneau and Sacagawea could not be more different. Charbonneau was a crude and rough man. In his younger years, he was accused of raping an Indian woman. He was reputed to have a short temper and was not above striking his wives. And speaking of wives, he had at least five of them, all Native American girls 16 years of age or younger. Each of them were bought or traded for which pretty much makes him a mean, lecherous rapist, whether looking at him through the lens of the 19th or 21st century. In the end, Charbonneau's time with the Lewis and Clark expedition gets mixed reviews, but there is little in the journals of the Corps that distinguishes him. And then there is Sacagawea. Many people have taken a romantic view towards this young woman, for obvious reasons. She was this teenage girl who helped all these rugged mountain men survive on one of the greatest journeys of discovery ever recorded. Some even argue that the mission would have failed without her. Sacagawea has become so famous that there have been songs and novels and movies about her. There is Mount Sacagawea in Wyoming, along with the Sacagawea Glacier. There's a Sacagawea Peak in Montana and in Idaho. The Sacagawea River is in Montana, and the Sacagawea State Park is located in Washington. You will find Lake Sacagawea in North Dakota. You can find more than 20 statues of her across the country. The U.S. Navy has even named several ships after the young Shoshone woman, and today the USNS Sacagawea, a cargo ship, is in active service. And finally, in 2000, the U.S. Mint issued the Sacagawea dollar coin, depicting Sacagawea and her son, Jean-Baptiste. Wow, that is quite a list, and I think it speaks for itself, and we'll just leave things there. So, after Toussaint Charbonneau and Sacagawea, we can't forget about their son, Jean-Baptiste, a.k.a. Pompey. Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau would lead a colorful life. The boy was, after all, a celebrity. As noted, he was left in the care of William Clark and received a quality education. As a young man, he befriended Duke Friedrich Paul Wilhelm, a German naturalist and explorer who was visiting the United States. 
Jean-Baptiste would travel to Europe as the Duke's guest and not return for six years. He learned to speak German and Spanish and traveled extensively as a member of the Duke's entourage. Charbonneau would return to America and would spend the next several decades in the American West involved in one venture or another. He was a trapper and an interpreter and a trader and a scout, amongst other things. He headed to California in 1848 to mine gold, where he would stay for 18 years. In 1866, Jean-Baptiste would depart California, possibly for Montana, to prospect for gold. However, in Danner, Oregon, he got sick, possibly following an injury we don't know exactly. The end result was that on May 16, 1866, Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau died. One obituary said it was from pneumonia. Another cited mountain fever as the cause of death. But we do not know for sure. No matter, little Pompey will forever be remembered in American folklore, the infant strapped to his mother, crossing the continent on a historic march. Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau has been honored in several ways, including Pompey's Pillar National Monument, located on the Yellowstone River in Montana. Also, the community of Charbonneau, Oregon is named after him. And of course, with his mother, he is depicted on the Sacagawea dollar coin, which was issued in 2000. After Jean-Baptiste, we only have three more members, other than the captains, of the Lewis and Clark expedition to cover. One is York, Clark's slave. York was the childhood companion of Clark. He is described as stout and strong and a first-rate woodsman. He was one of the best hunters on the expedition and a trusted companion. Of course, as a slave, he did not receive any pay from participating in the whole affair. After returning from the expedition, York reportedly asked for his freedom. We get contradictory accounts as to what happened after that. Some say that Clark freed York, but most say that he did not, at least not right away. The best thing that I can figure is that York was eventually allowed to be rented out to another man in Kentucky in order to be nearer to his wife. But eventually, after about 10 years or so, it appears York was able to buy or was granted his freedom. York operated a wagon freight business in Tennessee and Kentucky at some point and would die of cholera in 1832. York, like Sacagawea, has fascinated historians for 200 years. Both were slaves, or near slaves, whose lives were tied to others. They got no pay and no recognition, at least at the time. They weren't even listed as members of the expedition. Their second-tier status has caused others to champion their situations, forcing history to acknowledge their struggles and accomplishments. In popular culture, York has appeared in movies and books. Also, there is a statue of him in Louisville and another in Portland, Oregon. And finally, in 2001, as the bicentennial of the Lewis and Clark expedition approached, President Bill Clinton posthumously awarded York the rank of honorary sergeant in the U.S. Army. Next up is perhaps the man who was most critical to the success of the Lewis and Clark expedition. That would be George Druyer. Druyer had served the Corps of Discovery in many ways. He was an expert hunter, trapper, and interpreter. No man in the party had his skills, and his ability to design was critical to the Corps. I don't think anyone other than Lewis and Clark is referenced more in our story. Druyer was so valuable that Lewis recommended that, as a bonus, his monthly pay be raised from $25 to $30. After the expedition returned to St. Louis, Druyer would continue working in the Louisiana Territory. But life in the West was a dangerous business, even for someone as skilled as George Druyer. In 1810, he went on a beaver trapping expedition in the Three Forks area. He did not return. His remains were later found. He had been beheaded and his body mutilated. Evidence indicated that he had killed several Indians before meeting his demise. George Druyer, who had been so important to the Corps of Discovery, would not be forgotten. Mount Druyer in Montana is named after him, and there is a George Druyer Museum in Ohio. There is also a novel about him, Sign Talker, written in 2000. 
I have not read it, but it gets good reviews online. So with those people wrapped up, we now have one more member of the Corps of Discovery that we cannot forget about, and that is Seaman, the great Newfoundland dog of Captain Meriwether Lewis. Lewis had bought Seaman for $20 prior to the start of the expedition, and the dog was a loyal and trusted companion to the Corps. During the journey west, he would have his share of adventures. In 1805, he had been bitten by a beaver and had had to have surgery on a leg. Throughout the journey, he was an object of great curiosity amongst the Native American Indians, who had never seen such a dog. And of course, we can't forget about the time that some Indians tried to steal Seaman. Meriwether Lewis was ready to go to war over such an affront. No one knows what happened to Seaman after his return from the Lewis and Clark expedition. The last mention of him is in July of 1806, but if he had died, it likely would have been noted in the journals. The most likely answer as to Seaman's fate is that he went on being what he had always been, Meriwether Lewis's dog. Or perhaps Lewis had sold him off at that point. Again, we don't really know. There is a story, unsubstantiated, that Seaman remained Lewis's trusted companion and upon Lewis's death refused to leave the grave of his master, and perished himself, man's best friend to the end. Again, just a dramatic story that is not likely true. In reality, we just don't know what happened to the big guy. By the way, for more than a hundred years, it was believed that Seaman's name was Scannon, until scholars uncovered the truth in the 1980s. No matter, the big black Newfoundland is celebrated as one of the most heroic dogs in American history. Seaman shows up in a bunch of novels and books, and he is included in no less than 13 statues across America. And at Lewis and Clark College in Oregon, he is the school's official mascot. All pretty cool stuff for a dog. Now, that wraps up the men, and the woman and the dog, who were key players in the Corps of Discovery. But this podcast was not just about the members of the Corps. There were other people, primarily Native American Indians, who had a really powerful impact on the expedition. In fact, Lewis and Clark would not have completed their mission if it had not been for these individuals. So I want to touch on the fates of some of these men, just so that we can have a bit of closure. Let's start with Sheheki, or Big White, the great chief of the Mandan. He had been a key partner with the Corps, helping them survive the winter of 1804-05. He had proven to be a loyal and enthusiastic supporter of the American cause. As noted, he joined Lewis and Clark on the return journey, the only major chief to do so. He would go to Washington, D.C., be wowed by Thomas Jefferson, and eventually head home. However, his return would take a couple of years, as fighting with the Sioux and Arakara would make the trip back up the Missouri River nearly impossible. He would finally return to his people, and it is said that many of them did not believe the stories he told. Shaheki would die fighting the Hadatsa in 1812. The next person I want to mention is Kamiowate, the Shoshone chief and brother of Sacagawea, who helped the Americans cross the Rockies in the fall of 1805. Not much is known about the man other than that he would die fighting the Blackfeet, the date unknown. Another chief of note was Kobowe of the Clatsop people. Kobowe had been a key figure in the lives of the Corps in the winter of 1805-06. His relationship with Americans, while not great, would help the Corps survive that winter. He would die in 1830, but not before being an important man in the area for decades. In an interesting story, his skull was stolen by a Hudson's Bay Company doctor and sent to England to be put on display. It was damaged in the Blitz in World War II, and then sent to the Clatsop County Historical Society in 1853, and then to the Smithsonian Institute in 1956. In 1972, it was finally returned to the Clatsop people for reburial. Quite the journey. The other major group of Native Americans that helped the Corps were the Nez Perce. Of Twisted Hair, we don't know much about him after the expedition. However, his son Halahatsut, or Chief Lawyer as he was known, would be a prominent Nez Perce leader. As for the other major Nez Perce chiefs, Tedaharski and Cutnose, 
I really couldn't find any information about their fates, which is disappointing since, like Twisted Hair, they were so important to the success and survival of the Corps. And with that, we wrap up the section, a look at the important people of the Corps of Discovery, as well as some of the major American Indian individuals involved with the expedition. Next, we move on to Section 3 of this podcast, a look at the lives of the leaders of the Corps of Discovery, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. Hey, explorers, it's Matt. What if you could poke, prod, and explore the mysteries of nature from wherever you are? Outside In is the award-winning podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio that allows you to do just that. From explorations of nature to important conversations about climate change and sustainability, award-winning reporter and host Nate Hedgie covers all kinds of topics related to our world. They cover fascinating topics, like the wild horses of the American West and why they are so divisive, little-known tales from the world of competitive dog sled racing, and the disappearing dunes of coastal Oregon that inspired the desert planet of Arrakis. Through in-depth reporting and narrative storytelling, Outside In meets listeners wherever they are to take them on the journey. It's not just for thru-hikers and conservationists. It is a podcast for anyone who is curious about the natural world. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. For this section, I'm going to start with Clark, as he has a full but pretty straightforward life. William Clark was the prototype of the American West. He was tall and rugged and loyal and resourceful. His ability to work so seamlessly with Meriwether Lewis only enhanced this reputation. He was a capable and decent man. He employed common sense and common decency. In the aftermath of the expedition, there was one issue that arose for Clark, and that was the fact that, unlike Meriwether Lewis, he had never really been given his commission as a captain in the army. Lewis called him a captain, the men called him a captain, press called him a captain, everyone else just assumed he was a captain, but he had never been given the commission. This was a sore spot for Clark, who was a proud man, but he did not complain about it publicly, and he and Lewis never let it be an issue during the expedition. In fact, Lewis fought vigorously for the appointment, and he was angry that it never came through for his friend. But the disappointment of not receiving his captain's commission would be tempered by the rewards that came with completing one of the great journeys of exploration in American history. First, there would be financial rewards. As noted, Clark would receive double pay and 1,600 acres of land. But even more important, with Clark's experience and name recognition, he was destined for prominent positions in the West, which is where he would make a mark. Initially, Thomas Jefferson had wanted to make Clark a lieutenant colonel in the Army, but the War Department, as we learn, was not going to let the President dictate who got promotions. Instead, Jefferson would appoint Clark the U.S. Agent of Indian Affairs and a Brigadier General in the Militia for the Louisiana Territory. He would serve under the newly appointed Governor of the Territory, Meriwether Lewis. As a firm and respected voice, it would be Clark's job to deal with the Native peoples, facilitate trade deals, sign treaties, and so forth. And along with Lewis, he would partake in helping form the Missouri Fur Company, which was based in St. Louis. Also, in case you were wondering, Clark had a financial stake in the publication of the expedition's journals. However, he appears to have had no interest in the actual publication. He left that to his friend and partner. So, outside of a stint fighting the British in the War of 1812, Clark would essentially be the most important man with regard to Indian affairs west of the Mississippi. Some of the offices he held included Governor of the Missouri Territory and the Superintendent of Indian Affairs. Clark was effective and efficient in implementing the policies of the American government, but his time in these positions were mixed in the eyes of some. On one hand, Clark seems to have been genuinely concerned about the future of the Native peoples in the region. He had seen how hard their life was, and he understood what the coming of the Americans meant to them. The Indians faced poverty and a loss of culture. 
He tried to protect them and preserve their way of life in his position. But on the other hand, let's be honest, William Clark's attitudes toward the native peoples was common for the area. He never thought of them as equals. Like most Americans, he believed that the native peoples were an obstacle to the growth of America. Clark, like his friend Lewis, believed that the native peoples would eventually need to assimilate into the ways of the white people, become farmers and give up their lives that relied on following the buffalo herds or making war on the neighboring tribes. And when the Indians resisted, well, Clark had no problem using the stick to make things happen. In the end, the U.S. government appreciated his firm and steady leadership, and he would be a key player in the West until his death in 1838. With regard to his personal life, Clark would get married to Julia Hancock in 1808, and the couple would have five children. His eldest son was named Meriwether Lewis Clark. After his wife died in 1820, Clark married again to Harriet Kennerly Radford and had three more children. William Clark died on September 1, 1838, at the age of 68. His funeral procession in St. Louis stretched for more than a mile. Clark is not lacking in acknowledgement for his accomplishments. His years in government service in the West made him a respected and well-known figure. And it was because of this service, as well as his participation in the Lewis and Clark expedition, that he was held in high esteem by so many. As for the acknowledgments of William Clark's legacy, well, there are really just too many to mention. Schools, cities, towns, counties, ships, colleges, submarines, and more are named after him. There is even a plant named after the man, as well as a trout. Now, the last thing I do want to mention about William Clark is kind of cool. In 2001, as the bicentennial of the Lewis and Clark expedition neared, Clark was posthumously promoted to the rank of captain in the U.S. Army by President Bill Clinton. It had taken a while, but the promotion had finally come through. So, with William Clark wrapped up, it's time to move on to our final profile, Captain Meriwether Lewis, and he is a fascinating individual. From the inception of the Corps of Discovery, Meriwether Lewis was the star. He was the friend and advisor and confidant of President Thomas Jefferson. He was a soldier and a gentleman and a scientist. Lewis rubbed elbows with the elite of not just America, but the world, and it was Lewis who had, in a shocking move, elevated Clark to co-commander of the expedition. So, when the Corps of Discovery returned to St. Louis in the fall of 1806, it was Lewis that many viewed as the golden boy. He was young and daring and adventurous, and he was well-connected. As the protege of Thomas Jefferson, I do not doubt that many saw a man who could one day be president himself. On his return, Lewis was feted wherever he went, parties and balls and so forth. He was elected to the American Philosophical Society, a prestigious honor. As for rewards, he would get 1,600 acres of land as well as double pay. And beyond finances, there were offices to be gained. In 1807, Lewis was appointed territorial governor of Upper Louisiana and commander of the territory's militia. But Lewis had another important job, and that was assembling and publishing the journals of the Corps of Discovery. As we stated earlier, this was something that the president wanted very much. And for Lewis, he imagined that this would be a good way to make some money, money he wanted to use to invest in the lands he had just come from. However, for all the success Meriwether Lewis had found in his young life, he was only 33, by the way, he had his demons, and they were slowly getting the better of him. As we noted in earlier episodes, his family had a history of what was called at the time melancholy, which likely meant depression. People had noted that he could fall into dark moods, and this had increased upon his return from his mission. But it was not just depression or anxiety or whatever that haunted Lewis. There was also his drinking. Lewis had been known to enjoy his drink, and on returning from the expedition, he now had a chance to imbibe on a regular basis. And then you add to the depression and drinking his physical ailments, including malaria. Lewis had just spent the last three years essentially self-medicating for a variety of issues. He had been shot, requiring medicine to ease the pain. 
opium and morphine were likely involved. And he suffered from the effects of malaria, which has numerous side effects, including chills, fatigue, fever, nausea, and mental confusion, just to name a few. These are just some of the things that Meriwether Lewis had endured, all things that likely helped contribute to his less-than-ideal mental and physical state. It's hard to imagine such issues befalling Lewis, as he had been so energized and focused for the previous four years. He was never more brilliant than when faced with difficulties and problems. He thrived in those situations. But now things were different. He had men to report to. He had demands made of him. He had people questioning his decisions. All this after he had just spent three years being the supreme boss of a small group of extremely dedicated men. Now it was time to deal with bureaucrats and accountants. Frankly, he seems to have lost focus in this new environment, and that's understandable. Even today, we see this in soldiers coming home from long tours overseas. Life changes dramatically. You no longer have a simple job of just staying alive. Every step isn't a potential threat on your life. William Clark seems to have adjusted well to his life after the expedition, but Meriwether Lewis, well, he would struggle. With that, let us go back to the journals of the Corps. This was Lewis's first job. He said he would publish the map of the territory in October of 1807, then follow with the first volume of the journals by January of 1808. This first volume would be the narrative of the expedition. Two further volumes would follow, one on the geography, Indians, and trade prospects, and another on the scientific discoveries of the expedition. That sounds pretty reasonable. In 1807, Lewis, despite being the new governor of the Louisiana Territory, stayed in the East in order to get the journals prepared. As a note, he and Clark would split the costs of preparing the journals as well as the profits. Lewis would hire an assortment of individuals to aid him in the producing of the journals, such as botanists, artists, and mathematicians. But to be honest, Lewis was probably doing too much. He was trying to focus on the journals, but being pressured to go west and assume his position in Louisiana. And then there were the problems with his accounting practices. As discussed earlier, Lewis was not shy about handing out government IOUs. He would eventually run up a bill of nearly $40,000 for the expedition. Well, the government wanted some accountability, and dogged him for proof of the nearly 2,000 items he had bought for the expedition. It would eventually be resolved, but it cost him far too much time and energy. Lewis would finally get to St. Louis in March of 1808, still no journals published. But he was the governor, and he had work to do. On one hand, he had to deal with the business of governing the territory, and on the other hand, he wanted to make some money. Lewis bought thousands of acres of land, intent on reselling it at a profit, or perhaps setting up a large farm or plantation. Also, he and William Clark would be investors in the Missouri Fur Company. Lewis would be in a perfect position to give the new enterprise exclusivity to certain areas in the West. You might say, isn't that a conflict of interest? And the answer is, yes, but who cares? This was the Wild West, and making such deals was par for the course. Well, maybe not par, but it was not uncommon. Men used their position and influence to make advantageous deals. It was just considered good business. So, over the next year or so, Meriwether Lewis would prove to be a poor governor. He lived and worked with his friend William Clark, but he also made enemies and made some questionable decisions. Also, he failed to get the Mandan chief, Shaheki, returned to his people at the Mandan villages. It was an issue that upset President Jefferson and many others. The truth is, Meriwether Lewis may have been, in some other reality, a fine territorial governor. He was a smart and resourceful man. But in the real world, he was declining physically and mentally. He drank. He took medicine laced with morphine or opium to deal with his malaria relapses. And sadly, he struggled with, of all things, loneliness. He talked about wanting to find a wife to fill a hole in his life. But he struggled even with that, his erratic behavior appearing to frighten away more than one potential bride. As 1809 rolled around, Lewis's problems would continue as he struggled with the demands of his office and personal life. 
the journals Thomas Jefferson wanted so badly were not published. The president would write to Lewis, practically pleading with him to finish them. The two men's relationship grew more and more strained. Also, one person Lewis upset was the secretary of the Louisiana Territory, Frederick Bates. Bates and Lewis were at odds almost from the start, and the man worked to undermine Lewis, disputing his authority and questioning his actions. Add in Lewis's increasingly erratic behavior, and trouble was on the horizon. In the summer of 1809, Lewis would receive a notice from the War Department, refusing to honor a draft for $500 that he had issued. Remember, Lewis was notoriously quick to write out IOUs in the name of the government, and for the most part, he got away with it. But no more. He was now personally responsible for the funds. The problem was that while Lewis had investments, he was cash poor. He had properties and a stake in the fur company, but little hard currency. In fact, he was known to owe people all over St. Louis. When the War Department rejected the $500 IOU, various elements began to call in their loans. The total was more than $4,000. Facing a financial crisis, Lewis decided to travel to Washington, D.C. to work out all the money issues personally. He would leave in September of 1809, taking a boat down the Mississippi River. It is believed that he was heading to New Orleans, where he would get a ship to the East Coast. Lewis wrote out his last will and testament on September 11th. At this time, everyone knew that Lewis was in a frail state, until he ended physically. It was late summer, and the heat was oppressive. People noted that he was ill, possibly suffering the effects of malaria. It was here that Lewis reportedly tried to kill himself. Not much is known about the suicide attempt, but it was said that he was stopped by the crew of the boat. Lewis reached Fort Pickering, which is modern-day Memphis, Tennessee, on September 15th. The commander of the fort, upon seeing Lewis's condition and hearing about what he had done, sought to detain Lewis for his own protection, putting him on a 24-hour suicide watch. Lewis would gradually get better and be released. It was determined that he would be better off traveling overland to Washington, as opposed to taking a boat to New Orleans, and then sailing to the nation's capital. By the way, during this entire time, Lewis carried with him all the journals of the Corps of Discovery. Thus, Lewis headed overland using the Natchez Trace, an overland forest trail between Natchez, Mississippi, and Nashville, Tennessee. On October 10, 1809, he arrived at an inn known as Grinder's Stand, about 70 miles from Nashville. He was with some servants. His traveling companions had been delayed and would not arrive until the next day. What happens next is, to be honest, confusing. There are conflicting reports, and some things just don't make sense. But we'll try and piece together what happened. The innkeeper's wife, Priscilla Grinder, later said that Lewis was given a cabin, but that he was acting erratically. She said that she could hear him talking to himself and moving about his room until late into the night. And then, in the pre-dawn hours of October 11th, she heard two gunshots. Now it really gets confusing. Mrs. Grinder said that she heard Lewis call out for water. Other reports say that she saw him stumble out of his room, bleeding from the head and stomach. No matter what, she didn't do anything, saying she was terrified. By the way, if you're wondering, her husband, Mr. Grinder, the innkeeper, was away on business. Lewis was found by servants later that morning, a bullet in his stomach and head. He was still alive, and some reports say that he begged his servants to finish the job. Meriwether Lewis would die several hours later. The date was October 11, 1809. He was 35 years old. So, as you see, Lewis's death is cloaked in mystery and unknowns. Most people feel that Lewis succumbed to all the pressures around him. He was facing money issues. He was struggling to publish his journals. His political career was failing. And then you add in his struggles with alcohol, perhaps drugs, and depression, and he just couldn't go on. William Clark, upon hearing of his old friend's death, said, quote, I fear the weight of his mind has overcome him, end quote. However, there are many inconsistencies about the death of Lewis that have made it a favorite of amateur and professional detectives alike for 200-plus years. 
Some have speculated that robbers attacked Lewis, perhaps in league with the innkeeper's wife, whose testimony is confusing at times. Others say that maybe it was a plot by political rivals, although that is far-fetched as Lewis was pretty much destroying his own career without anyone else's help. And then there's just questions. I mean, why had the innkeeper's wife not helped Lewis? Why had she not alerted others? Could Lewis really have botched killing himself that badly? In the end, we don't know, but the general feeling among historians is that Lewis committed suicide. His friends and colleagues, including President Jefferson and William Clark, all agreed that suicide was the likely answer. Now, I don't want to dwell too much on Lewis's death, especially this question of whether it was murder or suicide. There's no definitive answer, and there's not really a way to get one. But again, with all the variables going on in Lewis's life, suicide seems to be the most likely answer to his death. Ultimately, I just have to say that Meriwether Lewis was a supremely talented man who struggled due to alcohol, drugs, and probably some sort of mental illness. It is sadly something still common to this day. So that is it, the life and death of Meriwether Lewis. I've spent a lot of time, especially compared to William Clark, talking about Lewis's final years, trying to understand the downward spiral he fell into. I did so because I found it fascinating and a tragedy. Here was this man who was sitting at the pinnacle of success. He was celebrated and toasted by a grateful nation. If anyone was a hero, it was him. As I said earlier, if you had said in 1806 that Meriwether Lewis would one day be president, most people would probably have agreed with you. Yet, he would be dead within three years. In death, Lewis fell into obscurity in many corners. Unlike his comrade, William Clark, Lewis's legacy rested strictly on the expedition to the Pacific. His suicide put a blemish on his image as well. But in time, Lewis's name would be restored, and a legacy of the Corps of Discovery would be recovered, to the point where it is now revered as the greatest expedition of discovery in American history. Like William Clark, Meriwether Lewis is now remembered in so many ways that we can't even mention them all. An army base, cities, counties, ships, colleges, schools, parks, mountains. You get the idea. All of them named after Meriwether Lewis. Now, before we finish with Meriwether Lewis, I want to talk about the famed journals of the Corps of Discovery, since they are pretty much linked to him. These were Lewis's babies, the way to promote the expedition's accomplishments. With Lewis's death, the ownership of the journals went to William Clark, who knew nothing of what to do with them. Clark, of course, looked into the work that Lewis had done, and it turns out that Lewis had not provided his editors with a single line of the manuscript. Clark was not interested in dealing with the publication of the journals, but he found a willing aid in the form of Nicholas Biddle, a 26-year-old lawyer and banker. Biddle was considered brilliant, having graduated from Princeton at the age of 15 as the class valedictorian. But just as important, Biddle was from a very wealthy and prominent family, and he had money and time to burn. He agreed to work on the publication of the course journals, spending almost two years on the project without pay. Biddle worked extensively with William Clark, as well as Private George Shannon, to organize the volumes. However, he would turn over the final editing process to author Paul Allen. Biddle's name was therefore not listed in the volumes when finally published. Many speculate he wanted it that way. Thankfully, we remember his contributions. Otherwise, the journals may have just been lost and never published. The publication of the journals in a two-volume set would not happen until 1814, the delay due to the War of 1812. What is published is mainly the narrative of the journey. However, with the expedition eight years in the rearview mirror, and the nation just finishing up a costly war, the journals did not sell particularly well, and William Clark never made any money from it. Fear not, we are not done with our journals. Eighty years later, as nostalgia for the American frontier was in great demand, naturalist Elliot Cuse republished the journals, including more of the scientific elements. This led to the rediscovery of other writings surrounding the Corps, 
including the journals of Sergeant Charles Floyd and John Ordway, along with other maps and letters. Then, in 1904, in celebration of the 100th anniversary of the Corps, historian Reuben Goldthwaites of the Wisconsin Historical Society gathered everything available about the Lewis and Clark expedition and published it all. It is with this publication, a century after the deaths of Lewis and Clark, that people realized just how special these documents were. The information of these lands, untouched by Western civilization, is sometimes the only descriptions we have of this time and place, and the work done detailing the native peoples, particularly that by Meriwether Lewis, is at times astounding. Without realizing it, the captains had become ethnologists, providing us with descriptions and analyses of cultures before they were overwhelmed by Western civilization. It is some amazing stuff. The journals were, in the end, a great success, and the core of discovery was soon being acknowledged as one of the great enterprises in American history. So, with that, we can move on to the fourth and final section of this podcast, the legacy of Lewis and Clark and the Corps of Discovery. For this, I'm going to take a look at some bigger questions, as well as offer up some general observations regarding the expedition and the geographic areas and the people that it affected. It's kind of a big topic, and it's a bit of a hodgepodge of stuff, but I hope it gives you some answers to questions you might have about the Corps and the long-lasting effects of the Lewis and Clark expedition. Okay, with that, let us get rolling. I think the first thing about the Lewis and Clark expedition that fascinates me is that it actually worked. It was a ballsy, ambitious plan from the start. Take a couple of dozen guys and send them thousands of miles into lands you know hold hostile natives. These are lands that you know are desired by your political rivals, in this case the British. And these are lands that you know little or nothing about. There is just so much that can go wrong with that plan. But here we are, more than 200 years later, giving the Corps of Discovery a big nod of admiration, because they had done it. So the question is, how did they do it? How did they accomplish this epic trek? Obviously, there are a ton of factors involved in this answer, but I want to offer a few thoughts. First, I think you start at the top. That is President Thomas Jefferson. I mean, it took someone with vision to imagine the journey. And then, he picked the right man for the job, Meriwether Lewis, who in turn picked the ideal partner, William Clark. The two captains then took the vision that Thomas Jefferson had and executed it in stunning fashion. They embraced what could have been an awkward command structure and made it a positive. And in the end, they did not let ego or ambition hinder the project. Instead, they thrived in their environment, supported each other, and would remain friends for the rest of their lives. That is something pretty special. Now, with that said, let's be honest, none of these guys was perfect. Far from it. But more than that, they did make good decisions. And when they did make mistakes, they learned from them and did not repeat them. Those are elements for success, the ability to make quality decisions, and the ability to recognize when you need to adapt. So, another reason this whole thing worked is related to this decision-making of Lewis and Clark, and that is in regard to the makeup of the expedition. Right from the start, the captains demonstrated the ability to make good decisions by selecting quality men for the job. And let me tell you, that is not the easiest thing to do. The men they selected, for the most part, were loyal, skilled, and steadfast. They respected each other and their captains. It made for a trust and a bond that helped the expedition survive through the difficult times. And here's some more about the decisions of Lewis and Clark. Throughout the expedition, the captains would have to juggle a myriad of elements every day. The health of their party, the danger of the natives, the unknown just over the horizon. But they did it, for the most part. When they needed to show strength, they did. When they needed to show restraint, they did. It was a fine balance to do such a thing over and over again for such a long time frame. I mean, there were a dozen times the Corps was ready to start a fight, but they didn't, save for the encounter with the Blackfeet in the summer of 1806. 
Again, all of this is a nod to the leadership and the decision-making of the captains and the quality of the men. No matter what happened, they generally kept their eye on the prize. When all was said and done, I think everything just gelled together. You had a unique mission, one of commerce and science and diplomacy, as well as one of exploration. To accomplish that, you needed strong leaders with a good force of disciplined men. And that's what you got. And then you add in some wild cards, like Sacagawea, and the natives such as the Mandan, Shoshone, and Nez Perce, and it's a perfect storm. It all just worked. And with that, we have to stress just how important the American Native Indians were to the Corps and their survival. Yes, there were some tribes that were threats, but multiple times this mission would have failed without the aid of the Native peoples. The expedition would have turned back or perished in the process. But we have seen that did not happen. In fact, only one person died on the entire enterprise, an extraordinary feat. It is something, even after all of these episodes, that astounds me. And finally, with regard to this how-did-it-all-work question, you can simply add in a healthy dose of good luck. I mean, one mistake, one bad decision, one itchy finger could have doomed the party. There were so many times that things could have gone wrong, for a bunch of reasons, but in the end, the expedition had a lot of luck on their side, and it helped them return home. So that wraps up my how-did-it-work question. Next, a quick observation. I want to take a few short paragraphs and talk about something I find immensely cool about the Lewis and Clark expedition, and that is it was really and truly an expedition not just about exploration. Oftentimes, we find exploration is conducted for financial gain, or glory, or simply by mistake. But the Lewis and Clark expedition is so much more than one thing. It was about money. It was about exploring. It was about politics. It was about diplomacy. It was about science. That's what makes it so cool. It was this wildly ambitious beast that the captains managed to control throughout the entire process. On this expedition, on one day, they're negotiating with Indian tribes. The next, you have Lewis and Clark writing 5,000-word descriptions about a plant, or the men collecting seeds or animal specimens, or making meticulous drawings of fish, or writing down pages upon pages about the native tribes along the route. When you have that, there's so much more going on than just some guys looking to find the best places to trap beaver. It's all kind of nerdy, and it shows how unique this expedition was. So that is something that makes the expedition special when compared to so many other journeys of exploration. It will be a part of the legacy of the Corps, and I find it very cool. Enough with that. Next, I want to take some time and note what the Corps actually did. I mean, they had been gone 28 months. What came out of all that? Well, first we can talk about what the Corps actually did bring back. And with that, I mean literally the physical things that the expedition brought back from the two-plus years in the West. And second, we'll go into a longer discussion about the achievements of the Corps, as well as their failures. So, the first question, what did the Corps bring back from their expedition? Here's a simple list. Maps and charts, including a detailed map of the West done by Captain Clark. It was one of the great prizes of the expedition. More than 120 animal specimens, including a few live animals. 178 new plants, two-thirds of which came from the west of the Continental Divide. Hundreds of other botanical specimens. There was also the journals, and this included drawings and writings and sketches, literally hundreds of pages of information about the lands they had ventured into. You had information on the geography, climate, plants, animals, soil, Indians, and so forth and so on. One of my favorite things was Meriwether Lewis assembled nine distinct collections of Indian languages. So that's the physical list of items brought back from the Corps, and it's pretty amazing stuff. Next, let's look at the achievements of the expedition, and with the achievements, we have to discuss the failures of the mission as well. Here we go. Let us begin by recalling that the main stated purpose of the expedition was commerce. For that, the goal was to find a route to the Pacific coast, 
preferably an all-water route, or at least one that featured minimal overland travel. The results? Well, the expedition made it to the Pacific Coast, a huge, huge accomplishment. But they found no all-water route or an easy overland route. Is that their fault? Well, no. Those things just did not exist. And you can't ding the expedition for not finding something that wasn't there. But at the time, some said that that meant the expedition was a failure. But those would be mostly political enemies of the president. However, we need to stress that while there was no all-water route to the Pacific, that did not mean that there weren't economic opportunities in the West. The big thing that was out there was the fur trade, and the Lewis and Clark expedition opened up new opportunities in this arena. Example, the American Fur Company was formed by John Jacob Astor in 1811 and would become one of the wealthiest companies in the nation. A subsidiary of the American Fur Company, the Pacific Fur Company, expanded into the Pacific Northwest building a fort on the Columbia River in 1811 at Astoria, Oregon, in an attempt to compete with the British. We will talk a bit more about the fur industry when we discuss the long-term effects of the expedition. So, the first goal of the expedition was economic, but there were other goals as well. This included the simple staking of the flag up the Missouri River and to the West Coast. The purchase of the Louisiana Territory was all well and good, but the young republic needed to actually demonstrate that they had the means and the will to take possession of these lands. The Lewis and Clark expedition was a message to foreign powers that the Louisiana Territory was American property. In this, the Corps of Discovery did well, representing the United States government from St. Louis to the Pacific. Another secondary goal was President Jefferson's dream of setting the stage for a nation that reached coast to coast. Lewis and Clark began that process. Now, admittedly, there was little the Americans could do in the far reaches of the Pacific Northwest at this time, but getting there and documenting the challenges of the Columbia River, the native tribes, and so much more was the start the United States needed. And yet another objective of the expedition was the desire to conduct diplomacy with the native Indians in the West. Now, much of this was linked to the economic goals of the expedition. The Americans needed to lure the Indians into their orbit and away from the British. The captains wanted to get the competing native tribes to work with each other and stop fighting, so that everyone would benefit as the American trade machine moved west. For the most part, that plan was a failure. The captains were simply too naive, thinking a few handshakes and treaties would change hundreds of years of Native American culture. In reality, the Americans simply made an already turbulent situation even more crazy. Another goal of the Corps was to not just reach the West Coast, but to detail the world around them. In this, the Lewis and Clark expedition was hugely successful. As we noted, they brought back a trove of information about the West, information that was geographic, scientific, and cultural in nature. Lewis and Clark and the Corps went into the unknown and brought back a ton of stuff, revealing half a continent to the rest of the world. That was accomplished brilliantly. So that basically wraps up the achievements and failures of the expedition. Next, I want to make some general observations about the Corps of Discovery and the impact that they had on the future of the American nation. We talked about commerce on the Missouri, in particular the fur trade. While the fur trade fueled fortunes and conflict on the Missouri River for decades, but by the 1830s, the demand for beaver fur was fading, and the great trading companies of the era faded as well. But if Lewis and Clark helped blaze the way for commercial enterprise, it would be those commercial enterprises that would help blaze the way for the next wave of people, settlers. Lewis and Clark had written about the lands that awaited farmers and families in the West. Well, those settlers would come, slowly but surely. As we said, commercial interests came first. But in time, the lands east of the Mississippi were settled, and more and more families pushed west. Example, the city of Kansas City, where Lewis and Clark had stood in 1806 and noted would make a good site for a fort, was founded in 1831. 
other communities would follow, many founded on spots that had started as trading posts, forts, or Indian villages. And this interest was not just in the interior of the nation. People were attracted to the opportunities on the Pacific coast, where trade was flourishing. To handle the influx of settlers heading to the west coast, the Oregon Trail was born in the 1830s. Many of the people who headed to the west coast were involved in the fur trade industry, but that would soon change. By 1870, more than 400,000 people had crossed the country using the same routes first blazed by the Corps of Discovery. Much of this was fueled by the influx of immigrants from Europe in the late 1840s and 1850s. This gradual movement west by American interests would solidify the hold of the plains by the United States, and then, in time, it would extend to the Pacific Northwest region, also called the Oregon Territory. This area would be dominated early on by British commercial interests, but the gradual influx of American settlers would eventually tilt control toward the United States. This effectively gave Thomas Jefferson that coast-to-coast nation that he dreamed of. During all of this, there is something that we can't forget about, and that is that there is someone in all of these lands, all getting pushed and prodded and pushed some more. These are the Native American peoples. I want to take a moment and talk about this, but know that it's very superficial in nature. So, here are my two cents on the subject. In reality, the Native American Indians, time and time again, got caught in the middle of our story. From the beginning, they were pawns, whether they knew it or not, of one power or another. At the time of the Lewis and Clark expedition, the Native people of the Plains and the West Coast were declining in number, primarily due to European diseases, in particular smallpox. That would only continue. With Lewis and Clark, and in the aftermath of their expedition, the Native tribes were seeing their worlds turned upside down overnight, and they did what they could do to stay not just relevant, but alive. Many tribes would simply disappear. Think of the chaos these people endured. None of them were prepared for what had happened and what was going to happen. As noted, Lewis and Clark's diplomacy efforts were pretty much a failure. Their approach had been naive and simplistic. And then, in the decades after the expedition, more and more waves of change arrived and forced their way into the traditional lands of the Indians of the Plains. This included other American Indians, forced west by the United States government. And then there were traders and trappers, followed by settlers, which brought soldiers and forts and towns. This meant more confusion, as well as confrontation. All of this really came to a head after the American Civil War in the 1860s, as the growing nation searched for new lands to settle. As I said, the American Indians were always in the middle of this entire thing. They had their way of life, their culture, and their tradition, but they were in the way of this growing, hungry behemoth called the United States. You can fault Lewis and Clark for their simplistic Indian policy, but there was not really anything else that they could have done. Commercial and national interests would have forced the Indians further west or into conflict sooner or later. For many tribes, it was devastating. Some would not survive the experience, and most would be greatly diminished. It was, for the most part, a tragedy on an epic scale. So that wraps up my short and simplistic talk about the American Indians of the Plains and the Pacific Northwest in the wake of Lewis and Clark. All right, we are almost done with this puppy. I have a couple of last things to talk about regarding Lewis and Clark and the Corps of Discovery. First, about Lewis and Clark, I look at them today and I see some really, really extraordinary men. William Clark was the epitome of the tall, rugged, no-nonsense Western frontiersman. His performance as a soldier, then on the expedition, and then as a politician, is perfectly consistent. He is immensely competent. He makes sound and quality decisions. In some ways, that makes Clark a little boring. You expect him to do well. You expect him to succeed. He was like that until the end of his life, and you have to admire and respect that quality. As for Meriwether Lewis, he had many of the same qualities as Clark, but he also had this mercurial streak that I find fascinating. 
I mean, this was a guy who could have been president one day. You probably would not have said that about William Clark. Lewis, however, comes across as the guy that people wanted to be around. He loved parties and balls and dinners, and he thrived in those situations. But in the end, I think his mental health issues and his drinking-slash-drug problem make him so very human. His life became a tragedy, which is a tragedy considering how much he had accomplished. One thing about both Lewis and Clark, they were staunch defenders and promoters of the United States. Perhaps that is something I did not stress enough in this series. Both of these men embodied this strong, aggressive young nation, and both of them embraced the idea of America. Of course, neither of these guys were perfect. No one is. We can ding them for many things on the expedition or in their post-expedition lives, but I think we can forgive them as well for those faults. So, in the wake of the Lewis and Clark expedition, a lot of people just forgot or dismissed the expedition. But in time, people would come to appreciate the Louisiana Purchase, as well as the expedition launched by Lewis and Clark. The Corps of Discovery would go on to remove the veil of half a continent to the world. It opened the door to traders and trappers, and then the settlers. It set the stage for the growth of an American nation to the Pacific coast. As noted earlier, as the 19th century came to a close, people started to look back at the Lewis and Clark expedition and realize just how important it had been to the nation. Part of this came from the publication of the Corps' journals, and the realization of just how much Lewis and Clark had accomplished. This also coincided with the end of the Wild West. By 1900, the lands of America were known and settled. The Indian Wars were no more. The United States had a history now, over a hundred years of stuff. There was a nostalgia for great explorers and adventures, and that's when people realized that Lewis and Clark were the greatest explorers and adventurers in the nation's young history. No American journey of exploration, outside of maybe going to the moon, is as famous or as important to the United States as the Lewis and Clark expedition. It is an integral part of American history and folklore. In many ways, the Lewis and Clark expedition has become even bigger than it really was. And let's remember, it was a big deal. It was sort of a first run of what was to happen to the American nation over the next century. It was brave men and women, boldly pushing into the dangers of the unknown, carrying the flag to the lands that would be ours. That's powerful imagery, and there's an element of truth to it. So, we come to the end of this epic series, Eight Parts. I want to thank everyone for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed it. I do have a few final notes. First, if the Lewis and Clark expedition interests you, there are a lot of great books on the subject. I think my favorite was Undaunted Courage, Meriwether Lewis, Thomas Jefferson, and the Opening of the American West, by historian Stephen Ambrose. It is one of the best historical biographies you will ever read. I've listed that and some others on our website, explorerspodcast.com. And please note that there are some great free resources available about the expedition, including the Corps' original journals. I have posted links to all of these on the site as well. And the last thing I want to mention is that there is the Lewis and Clark Historic Trail, a 3,700-mile route tracing the Lewis and Clark Expedition and run by the United States National Park Service. This is how important the Lewis and Clark Expedition is to American history. We've turned the entire dang thing into an experience, which is awesome. Personally, I have not done the trail, but I have been to several spots on it, including Great Falls, Montana, and Camp Disappointment, also in Montana. It was kind of cool to stand there and stare at the mountains and realize that Meriwether Lewis had stood in that same spot and done the exact same thing more than 200 years before. Like I say, that was kind of a cool feeling. In the end, I love the idea of following in the footsteps of this amazing journey, and I hope you can do it someday. I know I want to. So that is it, Lewis and Clark and the Corps of Discovery. It is an amazing story and probably the most important journey of discovery in American history. I hope you enjoyed. Thanks for taking part in this ride. See you next time.